highest is getting yeah. high. And also, yeah. it's kind of like partner in crime is such an overused thing with girls. Yeah. That like I love how that's the thing that sets you off because <laughs> it's probably a lot more reasonable things that piss you off, but sure. something that small like got angry about it or something. Okay. All right.
to the weekly review with roman today it's friday september 18th 2020 thanks so much for tuning in we are broadcasting live from mutiny radio we're in san francisco we're on ramatouche ohlone land and to learn more you can go to the weekly review website and we have a lot of links there if you go to weeklyrev.wordpress.com and if you click on the land acknowledgement section got lots of links including places to donate uh pages about history, as well as maps that show you which indigenous land that you're living on. So please do check that out. Got a quite a show coming up. Oof. It's I'm grateful to have clean air. Last week we did not have clean air and the doors were kept closed and I was wearing two masks. It was it was a lot going on. So grateful for the clean air and the blue skies. Start off with some music as we often do here. The first song is by the Suicide Commandos called Burn It Down. And I heard it for the first time recently, and I was like, oh, this must be some cool new band, and that song is very timely. And then, of course, I heard that that song came out in 1977. So, puts things in perspective. 
After that, one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, Rearview Mirror, it's a remastered version, off Versus, and I don't know if it's a fun fact, but it's a fact. You c at the end, you can hear the drummer throw his drumsticks, and it's because the, I guess the producer was, or the engineer was like, drum harder, drum harder, and he's like, ah! And he just was so pissed off by the end, he just threw his drumsticks. And I feel like that rage is something that a lot of us can tap into, and it's just incredibly frustrating to day after day, week after week, to be dealing with the same fucking nonsense and to want to live in a world where people respect the earth and respect each other and just want everyone to get what they need to live. And there are people who are standing in the way of that, many here in San Francisco. It's fucking disgusting. <sighs> and I don't think anything will change until people who have a lot of, for some reason, people are angry at unhoused people and until they direct that rage at the billionaires who live in the city and don't do anything with their fucking money then nothing's going to change i'm just it's just it's appalling i i'm still on a next door mailing list i don't know why maybe i like to uh not torture myself but uh, it's it's no good comes of it yet i'm still on there just in case something positive might and it's post after post, for the most part, is uh, people who are just so angry at the encampments. And they're not angry, and I'm sure I've made this speech several times before. They're not angry that uh, we live in a place with plenty of resources and empty apartments galore, and that there are folks who are unhoused. They're, they're angry because they have to witness it. And then they take it out on those people. And they're like, I want to call 311. I want to call the cops. And no, 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 no. And uh, if you have the fucking energy to do something to help get people out of that situation, give them some money. Or go up and talk to them. Get them some food. Ask them what they need. Or just do nothing at all because doing nothing at all is still better than trying to clear people's housing and steal people's housing. Recently, the SFPD and their public relations department, I guess they have a department. I don't know. I would like a public relations department where it's like, hey, Nazis, can you try not to kill me and my friends? That would be nice. Can you get a PR person to say that? Anyway, they had posted a photo of, like, back in the day, it was, like, Throwback Thursday, and it was, like, some cops posing by their car, and uh, many of the comments were, like, you know, like, very much in the uh, oeuvre of boot licking. That's on oeuvre, but you get, you get what I'm saying. And I was, like, ugh. And then I think about all the um, other Throwback Thursdays they could have where when they uh, went to uh, raid bars in the Castro following righteous riots when Dan White was found... Uh, when he was pretty much not charged with uh, murdering Harvey Milk and kind of got off with, like, was it third degree manslaughter or something like that. And people righteously rioted at City Hall and burned cop cars. And then the cops responded by then attacking people. So where's that th uh, Throwback Thursday photo? Where's the Throwback Thursday photos of the cops killing people? Oh. Not a fan. Not a fan. Oh. Getting that off my chest. And uh, as we, uh, we're in fascism right now, I mean, it's pretty much, I'll begin to a few stories now about it, uh, how just proof, evidence that we are, and how it's been creeping up for a long time now with the creation of ICE, with the creation of Department of Homeland Security, with the militarized police forces, with criminalization of poverty, with who knows how many uh, hate crime attacks and killings 
bombings abroad, bombings uh, here in this country with incarceration. Um, pretty fucking awful. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, I feel for so long, there are many of us who were like, hey, things are fucked up and people just did not want to hear it. And I get it. It's like, okay, this might make me uncomfortable or understand how we're complicit. And I myself am someone who lives in this country. And though I speak out, I could do more for sure. But we'll go through a few stories today, um, if not the headlines and the full the full stories. So, of course, ICE, which is a fucking terrorist organization, uh, have been performing uh, unwanted. They've been f forced hysterectomies on people. In addition to kidnapping people and separating people from their families. There's also the USPS, which is in fear of being defunded and shut down. They had a plan to send out five reusable masks to everyone in the country, and the White House decided to put a stop to that. Those are just two examples in the last week of things that I heard about. So who knows what else is going on that hasn't made it through the news cycle. And I did a favor to myself yesterday, and I went through most of the day without checking Twitter, and I was in a great mood. I was like feeling great. I, uh, in the last few days, I've been able to check in with some friends, some folks I haven't talked to in a while, and it felt really good and just like, oh, yeah, this is what life's about. It's about connecting and learning from each other and, you know, remembering that we're not in this alone. And uh, I do check Twitter, though, for news updates, and it's like, oh, fuck. I'd rather not and also just want to be aware of what's going on. And that's where I end up finding out some of this uh, information. I do want to say that if folks want to request any music. I didn't have a chance to really put together much of a playlist today, so if you have any, I had tweeted, are there any songs that give you hope? And I'm waiting on some responses, might not get some. So if you have any songs you'd like to hear, 415-550-0511, find me on Twitter, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R, -E and hopefully play some music. I know it can feel, uh, times feel really difficult and disturbing, and I was uh, texting with a friend, and how it's like, I'm not surprised about what's going on, yet I'm still disappointed in a way. Like, it's not like this is anything out of the ordinary. People in positions of power causing harm, folks acting out of fear, people committing lots of violence, the state having the monopoly on violence. It's not anything new, and at the same time, I'm like, really? This is still fucking going on. And, uh it's just all these things that it's like things going in the exact opposite direction. And I think about in the Bay Area how there's so much, there's like a lot, even though a lot of folks have been moving out, there's still so much uh, traffic. And I think part of that's because there have been cutbacks in terms of public transit with Muni and BART and everything. And also folks feeling unsafe about riding them in addition to the, the cutbacks in service. And I'm a big supporter of public transit. And I do not like, I don't have a car. I don't like to drive. Um, and it's for a number of reasons. And I think for those who can have alternative, like if public transit was completely accessible for everyone, uh, there wouldn't be this traffic, yet there's more and more folks are now driving. That's what I'm trying to say. It's due to the pandemic, more and more people are driving, and it's just, it's and like just fucking vicious drivers. A lot of people are just on the road, fucking not paying attention, not being courteous 
uh, it feels dangerous and it feels threatening. And um, in addition to the harm that cars do to the environment, eh, it's just dumb. Ugh. Well, I do want to bring a hop, a hop, hoppy, a happy, uplifting show. Um, um, I'll try. There must be some good things that are happening in the world, and I'll get to those. Oh. Yeah, so I have quite a few, oh gosh, quite a few articles here to get through. Perhaps I'll start off with some, and I also want to plug uh, the Center for Political Education, and they have a great mailing list. They have a lot of, oof, I'm just feeling really oof. I didn't finish my coffee this morning. I think that's part of it. They have a lot of great panel discussions, and they send out also like a weekly wrap-up. So I feel like that's a really great place just to maybe in the future. I'm telling myself I can be off Twitter a little bit more and just, you know, rely on other sources to get information. So there's an article from The Guardian by Rupert Neep or Neil. Let me see if I can make this a little bit larger so I can read. Neat, N-E-A-T-E. Oof. The wealth of U.S. billionaires rises nearly a third during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, there's an article from the Chronicle by Otis R. Taylor Jr. In Vallejo, police encounters often turn violent. It's an article. Oof. Um, for Color Lines by N. Jamila Chisholm. In the wake of George Floyd's killing, 115 protesters shot in the head. I guess I should have provided a trigger warning. Um, however, I feel like when, as soon as babies are born, the doctor should be like, trigger warning, uh, this is the world we're living in. It's fucked up. Or maybe they can use more uh, kind language. Like, oh, it's messed up. It's unsafe. Watch out. Yikes. This is awful. That's how I'm feeling. Oh, goodness. There's an article in ProPublica by Lila Jonas. New research shows disproportionate rate of coronavirus deaths in polluted areas. And then an article I might get to a little bit later, is, as mentioned earlier, from The Intercept by Jose Oliveras. Uh, a silent pandemic. Nurse at ICE facility blows the whistle on coronavirus dangers. And from the Daily News by Clayton Goose. NYC taxi drivers drowning in debt shut down Brooklyn Bridge in desperate plea to de Blasio. Oof. However, there's also organizing assets and political education tools. So political research associates have uh, mapping far-right and anti-immigrant movement alignment with county sheriffs. So again, that's political research associates. Uh, Community-based alternatives to keeping the police by city, to calling the police, excuse me, Community-based alternatives to calling the police by city from Don't Call the Police. And I'm going to click on that right now. I think that's super important. So if you go to, this is a good website to remember, don'tcallthepolice.com. Community-based alternatives to police in your city. And let's take a look here. You can uh, contact them, volunteer, donate, follow them on social media. There's a map. Um, so for national, they've got in Anchorage, Atlanta, Augusta, Austin, Baltimore, Binghamton, 
Boise, Boston, Buffalo, Charlotte, Chicago, Cleveland, Columbia, South Carolina, Columbus, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Duluth, Eugene, Grand Rapids, Hattiesburg, Honolulu, Houston, Indianapolis, Jackson, Kenosha, and Racine, Wisconsin, Las Vegas, Lexington, Los Angeles, Louisville, Miami, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Nashville, New Orleans, New York City, Newark, Oakland, Oklahoma City, Olympia, Omaha, Ontario, Canada, Orange County, California, Orlando, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Providence, Rhode Island, Redding, California, Richmond, Virginia, Sacramento, Salt Lake City, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, Sonoma County, St. Louis, Tampa, and Washington, D.C. What a fucking awesome resource. Yay. I'm going to tweet it out right now. And so I'm going to follow them. And I'm going to share this because this sounds like a really fucking rad resource. And big thanks to all the folks who uh, have put this information together. Very helpful. Yay. So there's something positive. Yay. That sounded sarcastic, but it's not. I'm, like, grateful that there are these resources. All right, in conversation with people for USPS, crafting a creative blueprint for solidarity through the mail by Zaina Alsu for Scalawag. And next up is uh, Racial Justice is Climate Justice Part 1 Abolition with Dean Spade from 350 Seattle. And then uh, Blackout Collective has launched an action fund. So I'm going to go to that page right now. So go to blackoutcollective.org forward slash action dash fund. And more information about this. We are excited to announce the launch of our new action fund to support protesters on the ground. Apply to receive up to $1,000 to support your actions. The money can be used for supplies, safety equipment, trainers, medics, or anything needed to help you plan your actions. This sounds fucking rad. Cool. So again, go to blackoutcollective.org forward slash action dash fund. Great. And they also provide trainings, action support resources, etc. There's a lot of resources out there. I think that's the point that I'm trying to make is that although there's a lot of terrible things happening, there's also so many folks organizing and so many resources out there. So, and let's see. Next up, do to do. Okay, there's also a page. Uh, National Black Disability Coalition. You can go check that out by going to blackdisability.org. Their welcome message says NBDC is the nation's organization for all black disabled people. Membership and partners include black disabled organizations, disabled people, parents, family members, faith-based nonprofits, and academic and policy leaders. Founded in 1990 in response to the need for black disabled people to organize around mutual concerns, NBDC is dedicated to examining and improving community leadership family inclusion, entrepreneurship, civil rights, service delivery systems, education and information and black disabled identity and culture through the lenses of ableism and racism. And they have a welcome video, so I'm gonna click on that. And big thanks to Leroy Moore for sharing this. And I'm gonna play this video now. And make sure everything's all right. All right, let's see. Hello. My name is Jane Dunham. I am the director of the National Black Disability Coalition. I'd like to introduce you to Leroy Moore, founding member, Jerome Harris, board member, and Esther Slade, communications director. Welcome to the National Black Disability Coalition. My name is Leroy Moore, and I'm one of the um, 
founding members of uh, the National Black Disability Coalition. And I think um, we definitely need a National Black um, Disability Coalition. Like Martin Luther King once said in his book, Why We Can't Wait, um, we can't follow people that are not going our way. So we can't rely on other people to do our work. We definitely need a national organization for black disabled people. It's long overdue and now it's here. So let's get to work. Hello, I'm Jerry Harris. I'm proud to be a member of the National Black Disabilities Coalition Board of Directors. The work that, they, that we're doing is fantastic. It's important, and it's going to result in there being real change throughout this country. What's important is that our unity will strengthen our friends and weaken our enemies. That's something that Paul Robeson said, and I believe, quite frankly, is important for us to remember. As we move toward building new capacity and new strategies, we're making certain that all people are recognizing their ability to contribute to building a strong country, a strong nation, and better communities. My name is Esther Slade. I'm the Communications Director for the National Black Disability Coalition. My job for the National Black Disability Coalition is to get the word out. Find us at our website, www.blackdisability.org, or Facebook, or YouTube. Thank you. So, I'm going to next play some music, and then I'm going to play video footage, video footage, video, while you hear the audio here from the Racial Justice is Climate Justice Part 1 Abolition that came out on September 12th, 2020 from 350 Seattle, and I'm playing the audio for that. You can also find it on YouTube, and it's about a little less than an hour long. So, again, if you go to Racial Justice is Climate Justice Part 1 Abolition, you can find that on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna play some music and then we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. So thanks so much for listening in and we'll be back uh, in a bit. Stay tuned. Here comes Dick, he's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane, you know she's sporting the chain. Same hair revolution, same build evolution. Tomorrow who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so androgynous. Closer than you know, love each other so. Love each other so, and Lord, you know. 
we heard was Androgynous by The Replacements, and then Fire Red Boy by Broken Social Scene, and chose that song because I found a, a disc, compact disc, from mid-2000s, and I made myself a mix, and I didn't know what was on the disc, but I played it, and it, it was a mix, a bunch of different songs, and then, or maybe three songs by various artists, and then a whole bunch of Broken Social Scene. I can vaguely remember making this. This is maybe 2004, 2005, and that was one of the songs on there, so I thought pick that out and play it. Coming up next is a video that I mentioned previously, and... Thanks to the CPE for sharing that this link in their weekly email. You can find this on YouTube, and this is Racial Justice is Climate Justice by 350 Seattle, Part 1, Abolition. And the speaker is Dean Spade of Seattle University. So I'm going to play the link here. Again, you can find this on YouTube. And just a note as we get started here, due to a technical issue, the first few minutes of the webinar were not recorded, and the video begins in the middle of the opening uh, land acknowledgement. Oh, and there's some more <laughs> music. So uh, let me pause this here and make sure the music's turned off in the background. There we go. All right. And to this. So again, racial justice is climate justice plus uh, part one abolition. We know that here on Earth, gravity pulls at somewhat constant 32.167 feet per second squared. In springtime, all that stuff is in the ground, which was grandpa and grandma, auntie and uncle at the molecular level. It gets sucked back into the trees. And the trees they're connected by fungi. So the trees are talking to each other, sending these nutrients that were grandpa and grandma back and forth. And they help each other. <clears throat> the mother trees help smaller trees and other living things. So you see, the Duwamish have been in this ground for so long that all that stuff, the biological material that was them, <clears throat> is all around you. We're in the trees, the grass, the berries, everywhere. By logical extension, we are the deer that eats the grass. So coming back into your bodies, coming back to this call. <clears throat> I'm really excited um, to launch this series, like I said, but I'm really excited to introduce you all to someone who I've been personally longing to meet for quite some time now, and I just had the opportunity to spend 15 minutes with Dean before the call talking and just like really humbled um, and excited to share the space with him. Um, I took a prison abolition class last <clears throat> year at the University of Washington in 2019, and both of my professors kept talking about Dean in almost every single class, um, and we were going to have Dean come into our class. For some reason, that didn't happen, but I did reach out to Dean for this series and he accepted. And so Dean, again, thank you. It's such an honor to have you here. Uh, thanks for coming to take time of yours to teach us this evening. Uh, yeah, so everybody, allow me in to introduce you to Dean, which honestly, I think it's an extremely succinct introduction for all that Dean is and contributes to communities across the board. Uh, Dean, Spain, Dean Spade sorry, has been working in movements to build gender, racial, and economic justice 
and prison and border abolition for the past two decades. That's a really long time. Um, he's the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of Law. So we're going to put that book into the chat so you can look it up. And also his latest book, which is coming out in October from Verso Press, which is called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. Again, we'll put that also in the chat um, so people can, can pre-order. Um, maybe we'll just do a, a silent round of applause since we can all see each other, but I will humbly pass the mic to you, Dean. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks to Shimona and Ale for the organizing and Aaron. Um, it's been really a pleasure already to work with you all. And it's just a really big deal for me to be with people in this group tonight. We are just experiencing the effects of climate change so intensely in our lives, so immediately. It's never been more urgent, you know, but it will keep being more urgent um, for us all to be here and build really powerful, imaginative, bold movements together that connect all the dots of all the different parts of this work. And so that's why we're here, that's what we're doing, and I'm hoping to contribute something to you all and just in terms of just giving you my 101 of what prison abolition and police abolition politics is about. For some of you, you've heard these ideas before. In that case, maybe my 101 is helpful of like how you've had this conversation with another person because I've just had it a lot <laughs> with a lot of different kinds of people. So that's what I can offer. It's like the, you know, that experience of having that conversation a lot. I'm gonna share slides um, because I find that for some people, it can be helpful to see the, some of the words I'm saying um, and to, this is one of my favorite pieces of art that you're gonna get to see. Um, and to get to, uh, you know, have the ideas underscored. And I can give these slides to the organizers so that you can look at them again later if you want to. Um, yeah, just this piece of art that I really love is um, by Seth Tabachman. It captures, I think, a lot of what my political life has been about. What I believe, and I just think it's beautifully, beautifully made. And we see, we see, we see us saving each other and ourselves all the time. Okay, I'm gonna dive in. Um, Ale is gonna interrupt me if there's something that, that's not working because I can't see the chat while I'm full screen sharing my um, slides with you. Okay, so the big question that maybe some of you are coming to is like, you know, people often are like, are you into reform? Or are you into abolition? I'm just gonna give you like the 101 of why, why, why those of us who are abolitionists are abolitionists. Like what's the basic logic? So one thing is that the systems we have are actually the products of reform, right? So like a good example of this that Angela Davis, whose book, Our Prison's Obsolete, is kind of a cornerstone of this thinking and I recommend it, it's very short and readable, um, says is, you know, and she's also drawn from the work of Michel Foucault and others, the current prison system we have was actually a replacement of just drawing and quartering people and public hangings and you know, th those, that kind of state power, right? And it was this idea that we would have we would put people in penitentiaries and it was kind of a Quaker and Christian idea. And it was like, people will, will go into so these solitary places and, and they'll be reformed by this kind of isolation, which of course is actually torture. Um, and that, so, so the whole history of prisons is a history of prison reform and prisons have always expanded through reforms. Another example that Angel Davis cites and many others that's really meaningful to me as a feminist is that early prisons weren't gendered. It was just like whoever went in there. And mostly it was white men inside prisons because um, in the US because um, enslaved people were disciplined in the context of their enslavement and women were often disciplined at home. But to some degree, 
women might end up in prisons. So then it was this huge reform to create women's prisons. And as soon as they existed, they put more and more women into them and built more and more women's prisons. This kind of pattern of like reform often means it has always meant expansion. Um, similarly with police, you know, people talk about how the origins of policing in the United States are slave patrols in which white people, white men voluntarily um, were, you know, were forced to patrol the streets looking for um, slaves who are out without permission um, and basically having a pattern of harassing black people and, and engaging in violence against them that still lives on today and how a lot of whiteness is practiced. Um, and then that eventually that police force becomes professionalized and that's a reform and becomes standardized, right? So all of the, all of the, the history of the growth of these systems um, is a history of reform. The other, another key piece of why we're abolitionists and why we have suspicion of reforms is that we fundamentally believe the nature of policing and imprisonment isn't one that can be changed through reform. Angela Davis's big argument here is that the contemporary prison system actually emerged out of slavery in the United States. So um, I'm sure many of you know that we have the largest prison imprisonment system in the world. Um, we have 25% of the world's prisoners and only 5% of the world's people, um, and that our system is intensely, intensely um, targeted at Black people, Indigenous people, other people of color, um, women, queers, and people with disabilities, poor people, um, and immigrants. So um, when formal emancipation happened in the United States, as I mentioned, before that, the prisons weren't primarily filled with Black people because Black people were disciplined and punished uh, by white people on, on plantations. Um, when, formal, um, when formal emancipation happened, there was a, a real panic among white people about how to discipline and capture black people who were perceived as dangerous, unruly, and less than human. And, um, and also how to recapture the, the wealth that, that black people's enslavement built for white people. And so uh, uh, something called a convict leasing system was invented, which um, meant that people would, uh, people could be, if, if black people were arrested for anything, they would be put into this essentially slave-like conditions and then rented out by the state to plantations that were the same ones that had owned slaves previously. At the same time, something called the Black Codes were passed, which were laws that made it a crime to do things only if you were Black, such as being unemployed, being loud and unruly, being drunk in public, uh, being irresponsible with your money, like adultery, like all of these things became um, punishable by imprisonment and being put into the convict leasing system that weren't punishable in the same way for white people. So Angela Davis notes, as, as many other scholars do, that kind of the 13th Amendment was written in this way to abolish slavery, but if you read it, it says, um, accept as punishment for a crime. So basically, emancipation had built into it the replacement of the enslavement system with a prison, ex expansive policing and prison system. Um, and at the time, of, uh, the time of the convict leasing system, it was a huge source of revenue for the states, um, states like Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, that, were, um, that, that had these large convict leasing systems. Today, imprisonment is not a source of revenue. That's actually a mistaken belief some people have. Prisoners do engage in labor for very low wages and very dangerous labor like fighter, firefighting, but the, but the profit is not the driving reason we have such prisons. Prisons actually cost an enormous amount of money for states. So we can talk about that more in the Q&A, but that's a misunderstanding a lot of people have. Um, most prisons in the United States are not private. Most of them are public. Getting rid of private prisons would not get rid of our problem. Um, sexual violence is endemic to imprisonment every place where people are kept in those kinds of conditions, whether we're talking about foster care group homes or psychiatric wards or um, you know, uh, penal prisons um, or immigration detention centers, sexual violence is happening there. I think we all know that um, from 
our own experience of living in the society. Um, and that can't be r rationalized that. We've had a Prison Rape Elimination Act on the books for many, many years in the United States. It's mostly used to punish queer and trans people for being openly queer and trans in prisons and to punish people for consensual affection. Um, we can talk more about that if you want to. It would be understood as a reform that actually made sense. That sounds good. Of course, we want to eliminate prison rape. It didn't do that. Um, so the prison policing system, you know, it is about protecting wealth. It is about finding people who look suspicious and putting, getting them out of places. It is about capturing um, poor people and capturing people who are perpetually in that, those targeted communities. Um, as I mentioned, reforms have expanded prisons and policing. I just want to name that a little bit from like my lifetime, from like, you know, the past 40-ish years, right? Like, um, and I want to name, there's a really important um, prison abolitionist scholar named Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and she and her partner, Craig Gilmore, wrote a piece in a wonderful book called Policing the Planet, which I forgot to include in my resources at the end, so maybe um, Shimon and Ali can help me put that in the chat, Policing the Planet um, is the name of the book. It's a great anthology with lots of short pieces that really help us understand why policing is the way it is today. But um, Gilmore and Gilmore say in their piece um, that when policing has gone through crises of legitimacy in the past, like the one we're seeing right now, and there was also one like this in the 60s and 70s when there was huge uprisings against white supremacy in the United States and settler colonialism and heteropatriarchy and people were identifying the police as a problem. When it goes through those moments of crisis of legitimacy, it usually expands where it is and how much of it there is. So for example, after that crisis in the 60s and 70s, you saw now police are gonna be in our schools as their officers. Now police are gonna be homeless outreach workers. Now police, you get more, you get more roles for police um, and you get an expansion of budgets and you get more police. So, um, and this is another example of this is the expansion of, um, and it, police budgets have only expanded in my lifetime and probably most of yours or all of yours. So it's a pretty amazing thing that right now there's actually a possibility of defunding the police as like something city councils all over are talking about. And we need to be putting a lot of pressure on our city, Seattle city council who are trying to backpedal on their promises to defund the police. Um, another example of this is that this expansion is that, as I mentioned with the origin of women's prisons, like the idea of creating special prisons to deal with pro problems inside prisons and to supposedly benefit prisoners is a classic mode of expansion. So that could be, oh, should we create a trans prison? People ask me that all the time. No, we should not create a trans prison. We should kick people out of it, right? However, you can't create a safe prison. Um, prison caging people is, you know, outrageous form of torture. Um, or in California, there was a huge amount of money put towards gender responsive prisons. Let's make prisons that are better for women, prisons where pe women can have their kids with them and have curtains look more like apartment it's just it's a prison right um or let's have let's add electronic home monitoring that's a huge push right now in washington and many other places which just means we're going to imprison people in their home the same people who are targeted and actually then we're going to expand it whenever they create a softer way they expand it to more people so we have to be suspicious of reforms that expand which is what we're doing um and then finally reforms have tended to legitimize and provide good pr for these systems so this is you know dylan rodriguez another important abolitionist scholar and activist talks about how this you know in the 1960s and 70s there was a lot of attention on how the lapd was so racist and like horrible and so then they hired a lot of people from the very communities that they police but they're still doing the same stuff right and so this move and we saw this with the debate about our black police, police chief here in seattle right like the idea of putting having um, uh, uh, LGBT police, women police, black police, um, this is all part of a, um, a PR scheme that doesn't change the nature of policing at all. Um, and another example of this is um, 
efforts to train police. Like maybe if the police were trained in uh, um, implicit bias, that's a classic one that lots of police departments have been trained in, or maybe if they were trained in mindfulness, or maybe if they were trained in feminism, you know, and it doesn't, it produces no less police violence, but it increases police budget. This is an example I wanted to share. So the San Jose Police Department recently tweeted, look, we've done all these reforms. There's this um, website called Eight Can't Wait that suggests reforms that police, police departments should do, yet most of these reforms have already been done by the same police departments who are um, murdering people all the time. Um, so this is the San Jose Police Department saying, look at us, we've done all these things, right? So this is for, for us an important argument about why this doesn't work and why this language is concerning and is used as PR for the police. Here's a counter meme um, uh, made by movement artists that says, hey, look, the Minneapolis Police Department was held up as a model of progressive police reform. They had all this stuff. They had body cams. They had officer diversity. They had implicit bias training. You know, they had uh, mental health crisis intervention training, and they still killed George Floyd and so many other people. So this really helps us see the problem um, that abolitionists are trying to raise and concern with. Um, I just wanted to put in a greenwashing one because the NYPD announced in July they are going to have hybrid cars. You guys all are thinking about greenwashing, I think, right? You're thinking about when governments and fossil fuel companies um, and other of our opponents uh, decide to name themselves as pro-environment or clean. The police are not about that. Um, one more example that makes me have to mildly vomit here in Seattle when I walk by every single business that has this sticker on its front, right? This is a, a campaign um, to, it was a PR campaign that Seattle police uh, began not that long after they murdered um, John T. Williams, indigenous woodcarver, um, and were under federal investigation. They created this campaign that said like, that they got all these businesses to put this rainbow sticker, stealing a symbol from our LGBT movement um, on their businesses, saying that if something happens to me, I can run in there and call, they'll call the cops for me. Even though most queer and trans people understand the cops to be a primary predator, primary, uh, you know, a creator of violence in their lives. One more, just while we're at it. Sorry that I had to show you so many sickening images, right? Um, so we see the police, um, both with explicit propaganda like this, but also with other more insidious um, uh, methods, using various kinds of reform to say that they are on our side, that they're part of our progressive movements, that they could be progressive, that they could be safe, when the evidence shows that uh, this has no impact on their actual behavior. I mean, the NYPD is probably the most notorious um, uh, perpetrator of anti-LGBT violence in the world besides the US military. Okay, so this is a time when we need a lot of discernment, and I think abolitionism is about discernment. As I mentioned, we're in a legitimacy crisis for the system of criminal punishment, and the question is, will this be a moment of recuperating that system and giving it a facelift but having it be the same, or will this be a moment where we actually dismantle it? We haven't had prior moments in, in my lifetime that dismantled it. So, and I'm not sure that we've had them in US history. I don't, I'm not sure if it's done anything but bro. So uh, we, we have, this is it's up to us. There's no guarantees. Just because a lot of people know who George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are doesn't mean this is gonna turn out good. It's gonna depend on how active we all are and what we do. So this is an opportunity for mobilization, but it's also an opportunity for demobilization because you can demobilize people by saying, but we have a black police chief, but we have a rainbow police car, but we're gonna get this training. This is, this is demobilization. They, the, the system itself, including Jenny Durkin and all of our mayors and you know, county counselors, et cetera, they wanna do as little as possible to meet the challenge that's being brought by the protest movement that has been very, very disruptive. Thank God, because as we know, that's what it takes to see change. 
So a few um, key pieces about abolition. Abolition is about calling for ending all forms of caging people. So that includes ending the border, like we're opposing law enforcement. So that means not just the criminal punishment system, but also the immigration enforcement system, which of course are like totally tied together. Um, it means getting rid of police. It means getting rid of disability incarceration. So a lot of people miss this one. Um, and it's really important to think about, right? And we can tie together and understand these forms of caging people as very intimately connected and using kind of the same technologies, even if they pretend to be separate or different. And it also means abolishing the child welfare system, which is another system that uh, takes black and indigenous people's children away from them and poor people's children away from them, but especially black and indigenous people's children um, and um, incarcerates young people, um, especially primarily from those communities. So we're really talking about all of these and I can give you resources if some of those are less familiar, like especially the analysis around disability incarceration and child welfare system, I can also share more resources with you. Most common questions asked by people who are learning about abolition. If you decide to identify as an abolitionist, you'll be talking about these questions for the rest of your life and it's time well spent. What about the dangerous people? This is the most common question. People have, we have all lived in a deep, deep propaganda police state our entire lives. We can see cop shows on TV 24 hours a day that tell us that the police save us from um, serial murders and serial rapists. This is the story that it tells, right? So just what are the answers to that? What are some of the answers to that? One, um, this has been a really centrally um, challenged by women of color feminists um, and immigrant feminists and queer and trans people saying, you know what, the police and the idea that the police protect us is outrageous. They are the perpetrators of violence against us. I recommend Andrea Ritchie's book, Invisible No More. Maybe someone else put that in the chat as a really great book about police violence against black women, women of color, women with disabilities, trans women, et cetera. Really useful, very hard to read in terms of the content, but very well written and clear. Um, in reality, sexual violence, the, the story that the police system tells us about sexual violence is that it's like stranger danger happens in the street. And on TV, like 90% of um, sexual violence happens outside. In our lives, it happens between people who know each other. The people who are most likely to hurt us are our own romantic partners, fellow students at our school, our coach, um, our, our people in our family, our coworkers. Like that's actually where this stuff happens. And none of that is in the zone of the street policing that is kind of justified through this. Um, and the ways to, and, and most sexual violence and including child sexual abuse is not reported, right? So the ways to solve it, criminal punishment, you can, you can add sentence enhancements to that for the rest of your life. They've been doing that for my entire life and it doesn't reduce the amount of it at all, right? And the prison and policing system itself is a site of sexual violence. If we wanted to uh, eliminate sexual violence or even reduce it, we would start by eliminating the prison and policing system. That would be one thing we would do. And then we would actually try to, act, and I'm gonna get more deeply into how would we actually solve that? What are the, I'll come back to that, what are the practices we need? There's also a lot of, um, those TV shows are full of ideas about psychopaths and so sociopaths. It's really important for us to question medical labels that justify the idea that some people are monsters. If, so first of all, you know, there's been psych psychiatric labels, like there was a psychiatric label called dreptomania for people who wanted to escape slavery, right? There, psychiatric labels are, are, are placed by the medical industrial complex to tell us what's abnormal behavior and usually to articulate some kind of anti-poor, anti-black, sexist or other um, agenda. So that's true about um, 
all psychiatric labels. So we should always question if we're being told a psychiatric label is the, and a psychiatric description is the reason a criminal punishment system should exist that primarily targets poor people, we gotta question that. And then we might ask, even if there are people who are supposedly described by these labels, have they existed in every society? Why are they here now? What, like most societies haven't imprisoned people because it's a terrible waste of every kind of resource, right? What, why, did, why does this exist? We might, could we get to the root causes of this behavior if it exists? How common is it, right? How, why are these labels so disproportionately used against certain kinds of people, right? So all of these, we have a kind of a critical question. If you're having that question, what about the sociopaths? Be like, well, where did I learn about that? Did I learn about sociopaths from law and order? What is that? That's propaganda. Like, how do I think differently about this? Um, fundamentally, who is in prison? Like, who, who, who gets filtered through the system? People who are poor and desperate, right? What is the violence that's addressed by this system? People who get in a fight with, within their family, people who get in a fight on the street between neighbors. Like, it's not, it's not like somebody who is a mastermind, genius, serial killer. That is, there are a few people who are doing that, mostly that's cops. I think a way we would reframe it, especially people on this call, is that the most dangerous, if we wanted to get rid of the most dangerous people, if we wanted to ask who are the most dangerous people in our society, they are the militaries, they are the police, they are the oil and gas industry that are responsible for the air we're breathing right now. They are the elected officials who are complicit, who are bought off, who, um, who forward law and order and um, pro-fossil fuel policies. Um, they are the bankers who destroy people's ability to have homes, right? Like we could really ask, where is the most harm coming from our society? And it's a totally different set of people than who's in prison. We know that the people, you know, the Donald Trump, the Larry Nassers, the um, Jeffrey Epstein, these people are insulated from any kind of accountability. Our system is not designed to actually neutralize dangerous people. Second big common question, but isn't this impossible? First, I just want to ask you all to be like, what else, what else are you all fighting for that other people think is impossible? Other people think it's impossible to imagine like real public transit or like free housing or like a fossil fuel free economy, a just transition. We all believe that's possible. So this is the same kind of question. It's like, it's absolutely possible, right? Um, and so I ask you to use your imagination the same way I know you already are in other areas. We've lived in this time of neoliberalism where people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan have told us there's no alternative. This was their direct response to the very disruptive anti-colonial, anti-racist and feminist movements that happened around the world in the 50s, 60s and 70s. The 80s response was no, it's only gonna be capitalist extraction. We don't believe in that. So that message though lives in us, I think emotionally. I think we've, been, we've, we've had to imbibe that to get by, to be taken seriously, to be seen as legitimate. So whenever that comes up in myself, I say, no, I, I refuse that conditioning. Every other human society on earth has, ha has been an alternative to this because we are the most imprisoning country that has ever existed on earth. So that's good. Um, and the system is really, really new, right? Like when we think about the fact that we imprison more people in our, um, in our immigration system than anywhere else, that's only been happening since like 2002. I mean, really new stuff. And even the prison boom is only from the 80s, 90s. You know, like, so this stuff is really new. It can be changed. All these policies went into place without people's consent, without people really knowing what they were. Most of this happens behind the scenes. The, the prison is somewhat invisibilized in the US in certain ways. This can be dismantled. We have to believe. We have to believe in change, or you know, we might as well just give up and on all the important things that we're all doing. We're not people who give up. And then the final question is so important: is how do we create safety? Right? We've been told this stuff keeps us safe. It totally doesn't. So 
shit that we still live in, we are all living in communities that are, that, that are full of harassment and violence um, and, and harm. There's three main proposals from abolitionists. One, we have to get to the root causes of what we now consider crime. Most of this stuff, this crime stuff, whatever that is, this behavior, theft, vandalism, or, you know, like uh, uh, the stuff that pe ends up with people's kids in the child welfare system because their house wasn't clean enough or because they had to leave a kid in the car while they went to a job interview. Most of this stuff is about poverty, stress, housing insecurity, lack of childcare, lack of healthcare. If we could just transfer the huge resources, in a lot of cities I've lived in, in a lot of cities I've studied, around 50% of the city budget, around 50% of the county budget is public safety. Think of all that money. What if it just went to housing? What if it just went to childcare? Like, if we could just transfer those resources from policing and prisons, not to mention the military, oh my God, to the people's well being so much less stress and friction in our lives, right? And I'm sure all of you know, I mean, I, I grew up in really intense poverty. When you are under that kind of stress, it is very hard to have peace in your family. It is very hard, to, it's like it's just, we're all at our worst when we're under extreme stress and these systems put poor people at, under extreme stress and put people experiencing racism under extreme stress, stress and people experiencing sexism, you know, so there also be just different, different society in terms of level of conflict. Um, people were not under those stresses. The second key piece of the work, so the first piece is just redistribute. That will resolve so much what we call crime. The second piece is change the cultural norms that drive violence. So we live in, people talk about a rape culture. We live in a culture where we are, we, uh, everything about the sexist culture we live in says that rape is acceptable, that sexual harassment and um, stalking are romantic and cute, that people, uh, certain kinds of people aren't allowed to say no. Um, we live, in a culture that's pro-gun and, and that where we, you know, we're a huge arms dealer. Like we live, we, we live in cultures that romanticize the very kinds of violence we see that have a, you know, create a kind of masculinity that only can, um, you know, where like men live in a culture without, where they're like touched less and where they're not allowed to show any vulnerability and then they can only get touched through forced sexual touch on women. We live, there's just so many cultural norms. What does this work look like? People doing healthy relationships classes with teens, people talking to each other about how to spot and identify violence inside people's families and inside each other's friendships and, and romantic relationships so that we can actually intervene. There was a study that said something, something like 70% of people would intervene if they saw drunk driving was about to happen, but only 9% would intervene if they thought that um, child sexual abuse was happening. Like we are just underskilled about how to show up for each other. Like, hey, my friend, they seem like they're isolating this relationship. I feel like there's kind of a control dynamic. I saw this thing happen at a party and I just say nothing or do nothing, I'm scared. Instead of, oh, do I, do I really just relentlessly reach out to them with love? You know, like, what are we doing that lets each other fall out, right? So there's a lot of skills, sort of skills classes shaping happening. There's a lot of, you know, just deep, deep, there's a million, you know, all of our movements are doing this deep, million kinds of training around consent, around all these pieces. And then the third piece is having actual facilitated processes when harm happens, right? That's what I'm, the, the world I'm part of calls that transformative justice. This is not processes that include police or prosecutors, processes in community. So what does transformative justice look like? Its goals are to ask these few questions. What does the person who did this harm do? I'm sorry, what did the person who did this harm need in order to stop doing it, right? Does this person do this harm when they get wasted? Does this person do this harm because they're under this kind of stress? Do they have misunderstandings about gender and sexuality and consent? What does this person need to never do this harm again, right? What does the person or people who are hurt need to heal and participate in community again, to feel comfortable going to a party again, to feel comfortable walking down the street again? What do they need? How can we surround them with that support? What does healing look like for them? What conditions made this harm possible 
that the community surrounding it can change, right? So like, I just, I'm, right now I, I'm thinking about Larry Nasser, like all the people who let him continue abusing those young people, like all the, the conspiracy around him, basically, that let people, you know, but there's also smaller versions of that inside our communities. We, we all know that professor's creepy, but nobody ever gets around the survivors and says, hey, let's like stop this, right? Um, or uh, we know that if people had better transportation or if these people were, had housing, they wouldn't have, you know, like what, what are the conditions that produce the likelihood of this harm? A lot of people ask, what do you do if, you, if a harm doer doesn't wanna participate in these processes? I just wanna surface that question. So like if there's been a harm, I'm in a music subculture, or I'm in an activist group and, and, uh, and, I've, and I've sexually assaulted uh, you know, somebody else in the group or I've been harassing people or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't wanna be a part of that process. In Transformative Justice, we talk about using leverage. So it's like, well, who, who could I hear from? But I would say, no, I guess I need to. Um, we talk about using all kinds of leverage, you know? Hey, if you don't participate in this, um, you know, we're gonna tell more people that you've done this so that they can stay safe by staying away from you. Or you need to do this or, or you can't be in this leadership position anymore or whatever. People, like there's always community leverage. We are social beings. And so that's a lot of how people deal with it. And also if there's somebody who really, really, really won't change their behavior, which is not, you know, always, it's not the norm. Um, I think in many ways, because there is leverage in when we use community space, community approaches, um, when there's somebody who really wants to change their behavior, you can also do stuff to keep people away from that situation with that person, right? That's like another thing, like don't keep them in a leadership position where they have access to a lot of people, right? Like whatever. So we can talk more about that. It's not as if there's no hard problems in this, but a lot of, um, a lot of the situations people think about when they hear about transformative justice are kind of exceptional. So I just want to suggest that like, most of us don't have skills for actually dealing with conflict. The system that we have now doesn't do any of those three things. It doesn't stop the person from doing the harm. They're just gonna get out of prison, do it, or if they're not even gonna be prosecuted because no one's gonna report because people don't report for all these good reasons. It doesn't figure out how to heal the person. Sometimes it actually uh, further, further traumatizes survivors, right? Um, and it doesn't look at all at the underlying conditions that produced it. Transformative justice is different from restorative justice. There's a lot of different pieces in that. Some of the readings I'll give at the end. Um, I can share more about that. I'm happy to talk about that if people want to hear about that. Um, I realize I'm just going to try to get us through these final slides. Um, so abolitionist strategies, there's kind of three main abolitionist pieces of work that maybe you've seen happening. One is just to help people survive. All the survival work, all the mutual aid work, supporting people who are in prisons, jails now, supporting their families, supporting people in criminalized communities just to survive. And that's, you know, that's its own form of organizing. Doing the kinds of transformative justice classes I just talked about and all the mutual aid we're doing to keep each other alive. Like all of that is abolitionist. The second kind of work is dismantling work. So this is the work, you know, the campaigns to shut down the detention center, campaigns to stop ex prison expansion in Washington, to not build a new youth jail, which they did build those. Um, all the, you know, all the, get the cops out of school, get the cops out of the hospital, get ICE out of school, get ICE out of, you know, um, defund the police, um, all, the, all the work to decriminalize. Um, anything, decriminalize cannabis, decriminalize sex work, uh, you know, all, all of that work is all the dismantling work. And the third piece is just the kind of combination of two of them and more, which is building the world we want and need. What are, in a world that was just and if people had what they needed and weren't desperate um, and where we had less violence, what would the transportation system look like? What would the energy system look like? What would the um, school system look like, et cetera? Um, abolition, one thing I want to just clarify, so abolitionism has a critique of reform, but it's not like there's no reforms. It's like we are assessing whether reforms get us towards our goal or not, or whether they're taking us in the wrong direction and building the system. So abolition provides a clarity of the goal to which we're moving. 
it, of course it includes incremental change. Shutting down one prison is incremental change. You didn't shut them all down at once. That's not a thing, right? Defunding the police in this budget cycle and next budget cycle, these are all incremental. But it's just knowing, it's assessing um, whether the reforms we're talking about are beneficial or not. Um, and there's some really great kind of uh, charts people use to discern this. I'm happy to share those too. Um, we ask the, ourselves these basic questions. Is this gonna legitimize or expand the system? If it is, we don't want it. Is this gonna divide us into deserving and undeserving? So is this only gonna be for people who have nonviolent charges? We know that there's racism and who gets charged with what? You know, is this only gonna be for people who don't have an immigration issue also? Is this only gonna, you know, et cetera. As long as they're gonna afford attorneys or who can pay certain fines. Will this shrink the impact or footprint of the carceral system? This is the idea here is this idea that people, you might hear abolitionists say of non-reformist reforms. Reformist reforms are the ones that have all the problems of reform. They build the system. They divide us into deserving and undeserving. So we're looking for non-reformist reforms that actually go towards our goal. Abolitionism is just clarifying that goal. Okay, I wanna just give two pages of resources. Um, this is a set of resources I think are really useful about the limits of reform. There's a new book out. I highly recommend it for a book group. Each prison, each chapter focuses on a different kind of system, like electronic home monitoring, child welfare, um, et cetera, uh, prison by any other name. Great book. Um, I really recommend the recent Miriam Kaba, um, New York Times op-ed, Yes, We Literally Need Abolished Police. She just knocks it out, goes through this um, argument. I recommend the Mihente Free Our Futures Policy Platform from a year or two ago that looks at, um, from an abolitionist perspective at immigration enforcement and what needs to change. Um, the, obviously, the Black Lives Matter Policy Platform also uh, working at these things. Um, and I recommend the Decriminalize Seattle and King County Equity Now blueprint document that was put out this summer. That's their blueprint for exactly what can be done in this budget season in uh, Seattle and generally the picture of like what it means to move resources out of Seattle police. And then one other page of resources is resources about transformative justice. For a lot of people, these are new ideas. I really recommend reading up on it. it, it a lot of people are like, I can't picture this. And so it's good to start by picturing like, oh, where do I already do this? Who do I already forgive? Where do I already do repair instead of abolishing, like, you know, uh, kicking a person out of my life? People will do it with children a lot. We actually repair instead of being like, you, you're out, you're gonna be put in a cage, right? Um, sometimes we do it with our lovers. Sometimes we do it, you know, in uh, other community spaces or, um, that we're in. So Generation Five's Ending Child Sexual Abuse, Transformative Justice Handbook, it's free online. It really goes into detail. It's important to look at child sexual abuse because one, it's something that we all have such strong feelings about. We, we've all been affected by it directly or indirectly. It's so endemic. And so it's useful to use an example that has been, it's so easy to stir the public up and say, we need more criminal justice to address this. So it's, it's a really important one. Um, it's, been, it's been a justification for a lot of expansion um, and it hasn't worked. Child sexual abuse has not been reduced by the drastic expansion of sex offender registries and all these things. Uh, the Creative Interventions Toolkit, it's a huge like 600 page toolkit about how to do this stuff. There's also a storytelling project associated with it. You can listen to stories of people who did processes and what happened. I really recommend that. Transformharm.org just has like everything about transformative justice on like all collected in one website. Um, there's an Accountable Communities video series that I worked on with the Barnard for Center for Research on Women that includes people from local um, orgs out here like API Chaya, and Northwest Network and lots of people from all around the country doing this work that really goes through a lot of cool things about the ideas of transformative justice in, in short videos. So it's easy to watch, watch it while you're doing the dishes. Um, and this new book, Beyond Survival, um, that is an uh, anthology full of stories about transformative justice. I want to recommend, oh, look, it's right there. Um, yeah, that is it.
you want me to maybe I'll leave those up for maybe I actually I'll just share them with um, Paula and um, everyone can get them over email so I am ready to take questions in the chat if that's easiest for you it might be like kind of efficient to put them in the chat if you if you can or if you want to be heard um, then Ali's going to be looking for a raised hand questions. I'm just starting at the bottom, so I also might have missed it. Can I speak to how gun to gun violence and how that can be reduced in a police-free future? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a few things. I mean, one thing that my um, dear friend and collaborator, Tourmaline, talks about is that the most dangerous guns in the United States are actually the most registered ones. They're the police guns, right, and military guns. So this, there's always this liberal idea that we should do gun reform and make it harder for people to get guns, but most of those reforms are about not being able to get guns if you have a criminal history or if you um, uh, have a mental health history. And those things, are, if you might have those things in a documented way, more likely if you're a person of color or poor, not necessarily if you're actually, so like in the US, most guns are owned by white men. So we need to definitely reframe how we think about this problem. I think um, it depends on what kinds of gun violence you're talking about. Certainly, if people didn't have so many guns, then when they get in fights, they wouldn't shoot each other so much. So it's like, I'm for like, could we, could, we, could we stop the gun industry from circulating so many guns? Could we look at the root causes? That's a question I have. I think the idea of trying to find get guns for the right people and wrong people is always going to end up super racist uh, because of who has documented criminal histories and who has documented mental health histories. Um, I, yeah, so I think it's really it's really complex in that way, um, and we have to really push back against some of the narratives that are happening right now around the country in reaction to the defund movement, where cities are saying, but we've got gang violence. Like, the biggest, most dangerous gang is the police, and some other really dangerous gangs are like these right-wing um, vigilantes who are going out and shooting people on the street, and some other dangerous gangs are like fraternities. Like, white men's gangs are like the worst gangs that have that actually the most... Um, uh, they get the most like free reign to do it all. And a lot of what people are called gangs and low-income communities, communities of color, um, there's a lot of complexity there. There's pe people are getting a lot of kinds of social connection and survival from some of those organizations. And so we might ask, what are the root causes of um, people needing to seek um, connection and survival and so through some of those methods, you know, through criminalized work, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of pieces to this gun story in the U.S. And I think that's, we, I probably use the same things to address it. Like, what are the root causes around gun manufacturing? And then like, what are the, what's the stuff going on around poverty and policing? Um, those are probably like the ways I would come at that. Um, you mentioned the reform of justice is not transformative justice. Yeah, so re um, restorative justice is a, it is a term that means a lot of different things. There's a lot of great things that happen under the restorative, just, restorative justice framework, but a lot of it also has been really heavily co-opted by um, police and prosecutors. And so they'll do like, they'll say they're doing restorative justice circles, but it's like there are police in the circles and it's all being held over, like the, the possibility of being prosecuted for crime is being held over the participants. And so that's like not likely to be like a very healing space. And also it's been done in a way, like there's a really great article um, that I can send to you all um, about how like the state of Minnesota like incorporated restorative justice, but it didn't change anything about the criminal punishment system there. The same people are arrested. And then you just, some of you get put through this other process, but then it, the other thing's hanging over you. Same with like drug courts, prostitution courts, all of these, a lot of these alternatives that are in the system, they actually justify and legitimize the system and sometimes grow it. Like, the, you know, King County has hired new restorative justice prosecutors. So because of that, um, women of color feminist, uh, uh, you know, activists named the other thing transformative justice. It says, one, we're not trying to restore things to the way they were before the harm happened. 
because the way that they were is part of what created the harm. And two, transformative justice means explicitly we're not using the police or prisons or um, prosecutors at all. So saying that there are cool things happening under the um, uh, rubric of restorative justice, I would just look at who's involved. If it involves the police and prosecutors, I would just be suspicious about it. Um, what does this mean for the military in the very rare case that there is a violent shooter or genuinely violent intervention? Who would the National Guard group be brought in and would it be explained in the prosecution? Yeah, so um, I think that those of us who are abolitionists don't find that those kinds of armed presences, um, the military, the police have, have, um, have been, they've been so disproportionately harmful to our communities and so rarely helpful, but the story is that they, like people have a lot of faith in the U.S. military, and you know there's like all this you know uh, uh, propaganda for it. But of course, the U.S. military is like the world's largest polluter and um, world's largest source of violence. And so, what we're talking about is not using those as solutions to anything, and then coming up with what really are the solutions. So, like, what are the root causes of mass shootings? Why have they increased so much in a certain period of time? Why are certain kinds of people always doing it? What what would stop it? I mean, that is, you know, like, what are the root causes? And then also, how do we respond when that's happening? Like, I think people, we saw a video of people uh, working to respond to it on the street in, um, recently in Wisconsin, right? Like, people, try, people trying to, like, stop that guy who had the gun, and two people got killed, and that's horrifying. And the police were, like, encouraging it and letting it happen, right? And that tells us a lot. Like, okay, what, so what do we need? So I've been part of groups where there's been, like, we've done, like, large-scale de-escalation trainings when we are anticipating those kinds of possibilities. And I think there are ways. And so there's a lot of great training out there, a lot of great thinking about this. We obviously need to scale this up a lot. Most of us, we've been living in a police state where we're just like, someone else will take care of it. Something seems wrong, call these other people. And I think we have a desire a lot of times to keep in that system. And I think it's a little bit parentified for most of us. We want there to be some other outside, like mommy, daddy, who comes when things are hard. Transformative justice says, nope, we're gonna actually work it out as locally as possible to the harm, because that's where the wisdom is. Right. And so that like, what does that look like in schools? I mean, what would it be like to have schools where we didn't teach toxic masculinity? And how would that change the possibilities of the kinds of shootings in schools? You know, these are some of the questions that we have. So I, I hope this is not, isn't unsatisfying, but it's like I'm trying to say two things. One, root causes and two, um, responsiveness from the communities affected and them getting to do pragmatic thinking. What's going to work here? And this, the same thing we're doing with disaster relief. Like FEMA sucks, right? FEMA could maybe show up really late, give you a loan to rebuild your house. That's like what they do, right? Whereas mutual aid networks on the ground in disasters are like, oh, we know where the old people are living really up high in this building that now has no elevator. We're going to bring them water. We know where, who has extra food, who has batteries, right? Like that's what mutual aid networks can do, that local wisdom. Same thing with responding to violence, right? The more local we are to the violence, the more we are likely to... Um, have that capacity. And it's also kind of like an anti-authoritarian, anti-colonial take. Like we don't want out, this idea that outside are coming in with a standardized response. We actually want self-determination for people about their safety. I realize a lot of this feels aspirational because we live in the society we live in now. So it requires some imagination and then also some realization that mass shooting is not the typical experience. Typically we're dealing with stuff like domestic violence on our block or in our family, child sexual abuse. Um, property threats. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff that's actually happening in our communities most often, and we can practice in those communities. Um, okay. 
um, can abolition uh, come before elimination of poverty? In other words, do we have to address the causes of crime before abolition? And perhaps more broadly, how does our police prison system function with American capitalism, great and class system? Um, the way I look at it is I, we, I don't think we have to wait for abolition for anything. Because if I just looked at all the violence and I wanted to reduce violence, I would take out the police, ICE, and prisons because they are kidnappers, rapists, murderers. So that wouldn't mean that suddenly we had perfection because we have a lot of societal problems that are really deep, you know, and those people don't help any of them, right? So um, yeah, like I think the abolitionist idea of like transferring resources away from policing and prisons and towards um, the needs of communities goes along with all of our other, you know, so many other leftist ideas about moving resources out of bailouts to oil and gas and into the hands of people unemployed during COVID, you know, like whatever. We have a lot of these ideas. They are simultaneous. They're, you know, the fight to tax Amazon or the fight to, um, you know, get unemployment benefits for people who are out of work or to make sure that undocumented people aren't left out of COVID relief is, is, is coterminous with and complementary to the fight to divest from fossil fuels and the fight to defund the Seattle police. Um, that's how I see it. I mean, the relationship between American capitalism and prisons, I mean, I think I really look to the idea of racial capitalism as the way I understand what capitalism is. Capitalism and racism and colonialism were all invented and co-constituted themselves and each other right throughout um, the last 500 years or whatever it is. And that, and they, and policing and imprisonment is a key technology of those things. So, um, and that's, and it's not surprising who's impacted by it, um, who, who, who's, who serves the cost of that. Um, okay, There's so many good questions. I'm sorry if I didn't get to yours. Um, since the USA is a country that has the most militarized police force, is there any country or society that at the forefront of this police um, form abolition? So yeah, I do not look to other countries in that sense. Obviously, like lots of countries have like a less armed police force or a less militarized police force, but the danger is that even if the police only had batons, they would use them on the same people for the same reasons. So that's why disarm is insufficient. Um, it's, uh, and, and that's also why, like, I, I'm sure you all know this, but like, right, like when one of the big pushes will be like, let's have police have less lethal weapon, like, um, they'll shoot beanbags at us and fire sound cannons and tase us. All of that has drastically expanded those industries. And they do all of that. They do that and kill people. And they do that and take people's eyes out. And they do that and um, you know, permanently harm people. Um, and they do that to the same people. So we really want to move away from the idea that we could ever have in the US a police force that wasn't like a, a site of racist, sexist violence. Um, that's what it will be used for. So I think that's one of the questions where we, we can have a really good debate. Like, would disarming be a step on the road to abolition or not? I think it just, there's a lot that depends on that. We think it's, the thing about these, this abolitionist discernment is there's actually a lot of room for debate in it. Like we're doing this all the time with our defund campaign. Like, okay, is, is, it, would, is this, will this get us there or will this bite us in the ass? This is the nature of, you know, trying to figure out with any, in any kind of social movement, like which reforms might have a backfire that's being anticipated that your opposition can use to justify their, their ongoing crime. Um, yeah, can I speak more to the statement that pr prisons are not profit or capitalist machines? Yeah, so like uh, during the Obama administration, there was uh, some focus on private prisons, which of course are terrible. Maybe some of you are part of a shutdown campaign um, around the um, geo-owned detention center in Tacoma. Um, private prisons are a big problem, but, they're, but the problem with that was that Obama then signed an executive order, executive order saying that we, they were gonna move away from them, federal level. 
I think Trump and Amelia did, but um, that wouldn't that wouldn't even scratch the surface of the problems facing in prisons. And so there was kind of a problem or a misunderstanding, especially among liberals, that 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 what prisons exist to do is like make money off people who are like work inside them. And it's just it's just a misunderstanding of the economics of prisons. Prisons are mostly public. They're incredibly expensive. Um, there's a lot of complex economic transactions between prisons. Like for example, Seattle pays King County Jail to hold people in it, and you know they pay other county. You know, like there's so much complexity in the. Uh, it just I just I would uh, warn us to have a simplistic understanding. And sometimes this thing happens, especially for white people, where we're like, this is a class, this is just a money issue. This is just a profit issue. And so we want to not see the white supremacy that's actually, like, white supremacy is incredibly expensive and it's totally worth it to capitalism. You know what I mean? So, like, how do we just kind of, like, um, let that account be as complex as it really is? If you want to understand this, I recommend Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, Golden Gulag. She talks about how prisons expanded in California. She shows how it's related to um, changes in agricultural land, finance capital, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, deindustrialization de and having surplus workers. I mean, she really gives a more complex account using like a Marxist economic theory, and it helps us keep that complexity on the surface. It's not just, it's, it's definitely not just for profit, you know, although there are people making money off prisons, like the cell phone companies that charge $15 a minute, or the, you know, the, or Geo, or, um, you know, there's lots of money changing hands, but it's not just like the reason prisons got bigger was because it made somebody money, because it really just cost a lot more money. It's state, state capacity moved from having any kind of social safety net to increasing prison and borders, right? So the other thing in here is like the left and the right, all the politicians, they all usually say they want a small government. They've built a much bigger government than we had before neoliberal policies. They just changed where it was. And now it's all in police and prisons, borders and housing, right? Um, can I talk about the medical industrial complex, mental health? industrial complex in the context of abolition. So a big thing here is that a lot of us worry that um, one way that people get a misunderstanding in the abolition conversation is they say, oh, people in, you know, people have mental health issues and that's why they're, um, you know, dist disturbing the peace or, um, or hurting each other. And so they just need to instead be locked up in psychiatric facilities. And we just really want to watch out for that because um, psychiatric labeling and who's incarcerated in psychiatric facilities has always been race, class, gendered, et cetera. Um, and we don't want to like justify that system that has policed norms um, and also has given people like endless incarceration. Some of you know here near Seattle, we have McNeil Island where people are in uh, civil confinement, which is endless until doctors there say they're allowed to leave. It's a very common thing. So just seeing how, um, also we don't want like to replace the police with a bunch of social workers. Social workers actually do a lot of racist policing to poor people already, right? Um, that's what the child welfare system looks like a lot is like, especially like, you know, white, social workers or our middle class social workers telling poor um, black and indigenous mothers that their mother needs to get them out um, and putting them under the microscope. So we really want to be careful of how social work, medicine, these are part of the same white supremacist and anti-poor, um, sexist, transphobic, et cetera, rationales. So we don't want to replace, we want to actually move towards self-determination for people and collective self-determination and real safety, not like a new mommy daddy state that's just in the form of a social worker instead of a cop. You know, and that's just a real danger right now that I, um, I think we're trying to look up. I'm part of a group that's putting out in the next, uh, on, Mon on Monday, we're putting out a, a big statement about reforms to oppose from this perspective, concerns about disability justice and abolition. And so look out for that. Um, and it might be of use to folks who are, who are wanting to make sure they catch that nuance. 
7.01 and I didn't get to answer all your questions, but I, I do believe in, in ending things on time just as respect yeah. for everybody, like let everybody put aside. Um, and uh, I will give these resources and the, and the slides to the organizers so they can share them all with you. And I'm really grateful to you all for, um, for being here. Oh, someone asked if I offer courses to undergrad students. Anyone here want to come to any of my classes, you're welcome to come. There's something other on Zoom, it's easy. You can email me and SU undergrads can opt to take my class. All right, that was super informative. And again, if you'd like to watch the video, you can find it on YouTube. Racial justice is climate justice, part one, abolition. And that was Dean Spade who was speaking. And you can find more from Dean Spade by going to deanspade.net, and that's D-E-A-N-S-P-A-D-E.net. And Dean is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at D-E-A-N-S-P-A-D-E. And also big thanks to the Center for Political Education. And I do want to um, say you can follow more of their work um, by going to politicaleducation.org. You can also donate to them. They also offer a lot of resources, ways to get involved and updates as well as programs. And I also do want to share that they do have another event um oops this was yesterday <laughs> okay um but they do have more upcoming events that uh will be happening soon so upcoming events i'm gonna click on this link here and there was one that was okay um i'll i will get back to that but yes do um, check out politicaleducation.org lots of resources there gonna get play a little bit of music take a bit of a break here did get a request for some uplifting joy division so uh, here's probably my favorite Joy Division song, followed by a little bit more music, and then we'll be back afterwards. So please do stay tuned.
Yesterday, we learned about a whistleblower, a nurse, uh, working at a Georgia Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE facility, leveling, honestly, ghastly allegations, chief among them, that women in that facility, migrant women, say that a doctor was performing unauthorized hysterectomies on immigrant women detained at that facility, which, again, is privately run. Now, you might have seen this story uh, zipping around social media, understandably. And the allegations come from a formal complaint that was actually filed with the watchdog at the Department of Homeland Security. And the whistleblower is on the record, is named. Her name is Dawn Wooten. Uh, she was employed by that detention center. And along with those unauthorized hysterectomies, the complaint also alleges the facility lacked protection against coronavirus for detained immigrants, and that detainees suffer from a general lack of medical care. Well, we've been chasing this story all day along with some of my colleagues here at NBC. Tonight, we can report a lawyer named Benjamin Osorio, representing women at that very facility, told NBC News that indeed two of his clients received hysterectomies they believe may have been unnecessary. And tonight, we here on All In spoke with another attorney who represents two different women who claim they also had unnecessary hysterectomies while detained at this facility. That lawyer tells us that as many as 15 immigrant women were given full or partial hysterectomies or other procedures for which no medical indication existed. Now, we reached out to ICE with these accusations. They sent us a long statement disputing these allegations and the implication that detainees are used for experimental medical procedures. Hey there, this is Roman. This is, uh, I want to hear the words from Don Wooden, and this is a bit of a long piece here on NBC, but you can find it. And I wanted to mostly just share the uh, GoFundMe for the whistleblower, Don Wooden, and you can find that uh, by going to GoFundMe.com forward slash protect dash whistleblower dash Don, D-A-W-N dash W-O-O-T-E-N. I did want to hear play some of her voice um, as we're running out of time here, but um, you can also, that the GoFundMe also provides the full interview. Um, I try not to have too many of the mainstream media talking heads on here and really just want to share the voices of whistleblowers and folks. So this is a um, this is her experience um, at ICDC and this was shared on Twitter by Project South. You can find them by going to at Project South on Twitter and play a little bit here and this is about uh, a little over 30 seconds. From full time, 40 hours a week until PRN as needed. There needs to be attention brought to ICDC. The management needs to be changed. You have the lives of not only family members that are waiting to see their family members, but you're held accountable. As a nurse, I took an oath that my life, when I step in, no longer was my life, it became the lives of others. <laughs> And until you see through the eyes of others and you experience through the eyes of others, there's no concern and there's no regard. From full time, 40 hours. Okay. Um, so that also just, uh, God, the edits. Okay. Wanting to share, um, there was a protest in New York. Um, many folks were arrested. And uh, this was a few days ago at the ICE facility in New York. I don't quite have that right in front of me, but that did happen. And I also want to share um, another way that folks can participate if you are unable to go to your local ICE facility and protest the fuck out of it. And oh, <sighs> gotta take a breath. Um, at R X O R C I S T sixty nine on 
Twitter shared on September 16th, I'm having a blast harassing the Nazis at the ICE concentration camp. Call 229-468-4121 and try different extensions, 225, 260, 255, etc. Ask them if they're okay working for a concentration camp. Ask if they're just following orders, etc. Hashtag abolish ICE. Hashtag fuck ICE. Hashtag ICDC. So I've shared this as well on Twitter. So again, you can uh, see the, the tweet by going to at R-X-O-R-C-I-S-T-69. They have the phone number. Again, if you are unable to get anywhere uh, in person, um, you can also make phone calls. And really, uh, ICE needs to be dismantled. And the fact that we're still fucking talking about it is just so fucking disgusting. And I hate... Ugh. Ooh. Clearly a lot of anger here. There's also um, some more numbers here. I think this is just also a repeat, actually. So, Oh, there's also extension 230. But if you go to the tweet, they have, I'm going to retweet it right, we, we tweeted, retweet it right now. And um, just encouraging folks to um, sharing this. 230 is the medical department at ICE and just want to continue to apply pressure to get ICE to shut the fuck down. Another action item folks can take is uh, specifically folks in, in New York, uh, beforeitsgone.co, uh, which is before it's gone, take it back, uh, documenting uh, Brooklyn's fighting gentrification uh, tomorrow, no wait, today, today, Friday, uh, <laughs> September 18th, reaching that point in the show where I'm like, lots of information going out there. Uh, Equality for Flatbush, uh, action alert, tell developers to stop harassing multiracial same-sex homeowners and their children. And they have uh, this information here. And I'm going to go to equalityforflatbush.org. I'm going to click on it right now. Here. Equalityforflatbush.org. They have uh, campaigns uh, about holding police accountable, um, and also just a lot of more information as well. And yeah, oof. So yeah, if you go to beforeitsgone.co, can find the link about uh, Brooklyn Home Company and I Fathom Construction, who have bullied and harassed uh, South Slope family um, in myriad ways. And you can call 718-715-0418 uh, or post to their Facebook and Instagram pages about their bullying and an intimidation of the family. And please tell the Brooklyn Home Company to stop their anti-lesbian sexist harassment and bullying of homeowners and their children. Property, or excuse me, properly and correctly perform all the needed repairs to their home caused by their construction. Be financially responsible for the legal and professional expenses, such as the engineer they've burdened the homeowners with throughout the process. Stop the non-consensually videotaping and taking pictures of the homeowners and their children. Uh, and there's just a lot more. So fuck these developers, and also please do take action, especially if you're in New York. Again, quality for Flatbush. Go to uh, also before it's gone.co for uh, that information as well. So, again, whew, lots of ways to fight back. And also, if you've been, um, if you've had to survive 
through this, you can also tell your story. So there's a link there as well. And I think storytelling is a super important way to just uh, remind folks that we're all in this together. All right, it's 1.50. I did have a few more headlines to get to. One is a Nebraska shop owner indicted for shooting death of Black Lives Matter protester James uh, Skurlock. That was on Democracy Now! They shared that um, earlier today or yesterday, democracynow.org. They've got more information on that as well. And, oh my gosh, I, ha just a <laughs> I have a whole slew of other headlines here. Maybe I can at least um, get to some of them. Um, newly revealed USPS documents show an agency struggling to manage Trump, Amazon, and the pandemic. Nearly 10,000 pages of emails, memos, and other private documents offered new details about the agency's struggles and the pro-Trump figures to whom it turned for advice. That's from the Washington Post, uh, written by Tony Rom, Jacob Bogage, or Bogage, and Lena H. Sun. This came out today, September 18th. Oh, oh, one main thing I wanted to get to is uh, going to uh, Jackie4Senate.com, uh, Jackie Fielder, who's running against Scott Weiner here in California, and that's elections coming up. Um, if you go to Jackie's webpage, again, Jackie4Senate.com, if you go to forward slash wildfires, there's an indigenous wildfire task force, uh, indigenous land management to prevent catastrophic wildfires, which is, has been in the works. Uh, over the past several years, fire season has emerged as an annual catastrophe in California with increasing severity and scale. Currently, there are 625 active wildfires displacing thousands of Californians, too many with nowhere to go, all during a pandemic. To boot, we don't have enough firefighters to contain the fires, and incarcerated people who are usually enlisted for cents on the hour are trapped in prisons with COVID-19. And this... Uh, there's a lot of information here, but um, I do want to share this. Uh, we're working to develop an intertribal convening in California to discuss these exact things. We hope to drive the changes needed to put indigenous stewardship principles uh, and practices back into the hands of the people being able to connect this group to an indigenous wildland fire task force would help to progress the shared stewardship discussion, says uh, Bill Tripp, who's the director of the Natural Resources and Environmental Policy in the Karuk Tribe Department of Natural Resources and lead author of the Karuk Climate Ad Adaptation Plan. Oh, there's so much information here. Okay, but I do want to share this. So, um, and also Dr. Carrie Marie Norgard, who's the author and professor of sociology and environmental studies at University of Oregon, it says California's Native Nations and the Karuk Tribe in particular, have detailed and sophisticated knowledge of fire management that is needed now in the face of climate change. So there's more information here, and also Jackie Fielder did a video um, recently, maybe I think it was last week, about this, and as soon as that's up, that's something also I'd like to share with all you listeners out there. So it's uh, 1.53, time to wrap up the show. Yikes. There's a, there's a lot, a lot of information here. I'm hoping that at least some pieces here um, were helpful. Uh, I know I learned a lot by going over a lot of this. And there's so much to learn and a lot to do. And also a reminder that there's so much that's already being done right now and to not lose faith and not lose hope. And a better world is possible. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please do check out weeklyrev.wordpress.com. We are working on a website that will serve as a companion piece to the show, as well as providing resources and other links that are mentioned on the show. So again, weeklyrev.wordpress.com. Also, there's a Patreon up there if you'd like to contribute to the show. Um, please do. Anywhere from a dollar a month and up is greatly appreciated. 
Uh, please help out Mutiny Radio, keep the station alive and well, mutinyradio.fm. And thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. Oh, also music. Uh, so yeah, played some music there in the last block there. That was Disorder by Joy Division, followed by the Killers cover of Joy Division's Shadow Play, and then The Seeds with Pushing Too Hard. Uh, here's some Queen Latifah. And we'll be back uh, next week. Have a great week, everybody. It is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to do. To get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no whatsoever clue. So listen very carefully as I break it down for you. Merrily, 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 merrily. Hi, so happy, overjoyed. Please, with all the beats and rhymes my sisters have employed. Look, it's me throwing down the sound. Totally a yes. Let me state the position. Lady first, yeah? Yes. Woman is gracious, see. I know that all the fellas out there will agree with me. Not for being one, but for being with one. Cause when it's time for loving, it's the woman that gets them sworn. Stepping, strutting, moving on, rhyming, cutting, and not forgetting. We are the ones to give birth to the new generation of prophets. Cause it's late. I break into a lyrical freestyle. Grab the mic, look at the crowd, and see smiles. Cause they see a woman standing up on her own two. Sloppy slouching is something I won't do. Some think that we can't flow. Can't flow. Stereotypes, they got to go. Got I'ma mess around and flip the scene into reverse With what? With a little touch of late first Throughout the universe, a female rapper with a message to send. The Queen Latifah is a perfect specimen. My sister, can I get some? Sure, Moni Love, grab the mic and get dumb. Yo, praise me not for being simply what I am. Born in L-O-N-D-O and sound American. You dig exactly where I'm coming from. You want righteous rhyme and I'ma give you some. To enable you to age yourself and get paid. And the material that has no meaning, I wish to slay. Pay me every bit of your attention. Like mother, like daughter, I would also like to mention. I wish for you to bring me to the bring me to the rhythm of now systematically given desperately stressing i'm the daughter of a sister who's the mother of a brother who's the brother of another plus one more all four have a job to do we do and it respect due to the mother who's the root of it and next up is me the m-o-n-i-e-l-o-v-e and i'm first because i'm a l-a-z-i-e contacting in fact the style it gets harder cooling on the scene with my european partner laying down track after track waiting for the climax when i get there that's when i tax the next man or the next woman man it doesn't make a difference keep the competition coming and i recite chapter in verse the title of this recital is ladies first
Hey, take a break from the social isolation and come out to All Jokes, the daytime outdoor comedy show at All Good Pizza in Bayview on Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m. Where Drea Myers hosts a super funny lineup of comedians. Grab some brick oven pizza and enjoy the show in an outdoor courtyard with plenty of room to be physically distanced. See you soon at All Good Pizza for this tremendous outdoor comedy show at 1605 Gerald Avenue in the Bayview. That's all jokes at Good Pizza with Drea Myers, Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Reach a point in the show where that younger folks coming out, coming up and.